This is a podcast from the October 27, 2008 meeting of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. The podcast features discussions relating to commercialism and economic health in intercollegiate athletics. The sessions are the first in a year-long series of planned discussions on the economics and finance of college sports that will culminate in a major report on the realities facing universities and athletic programs in late 2009. For more information on the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics, visit knightcommission.org. The first session related to commercialism in sports and athletes' rights in the 21st century, how the new media landscape and fan interactivity is impacting traditional amateurism principles. Long-standing NCAA amateurism principles prohibit the commercial use of college players' names, images, and likenesses. However, these principles are challenged by emerging online media and a desire to enhance revenue by allowing the use of athletes' names and images by commercial partners. The current debate over whether names and statistics of college athletes should be allowed to be used in commercial fantasy football and basketball games without the institution's or athlete's consent was one issue discussed in the broader examination of college athletes and their publicity rights. The podcast begins with an introduction from Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics co-chairman William Britt Kerwin, Chancellor of the University System of Maryland. Uh, this, this issue has risen to the fore. Um, of course, it's been developing over time, but it's uh, risen to the fore recently uh, because of the impact of uh, new digital platforms um, and uh, the, the demand the, for the commercial use of players' names and uh, likenesses in, 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 in these uh, digital uh, platforms. Um, these demands and uses are in direct conflict with the NCAA's uh, amateurism principles, uh, the commercial in, in, in interests have been emboldened by a recent ruling, court ruling involving Major League Baseball, uh, which allows the use of professional baseball players' uh, images in fantasy league games. Uh, this is a very important and, and complex uh, matter, and uh, we have an uh, outstanding uh, panel to uh, help us understand uh, the issues involved in, in this, uh, uh, th this new media uh, and its challenges to uh, longstanding principles with the uh, NCAA. Uh, let me introduce the members of the panel, and uh, then we'll ask them to go in, in the order of introduction. Uh, on, the, on our far left there, we have Wally Renfo, who's the vice president and senior advisor to the president of the NCAA. Wally has worked for more than four decades in communications and public relations, including more than 35 years at the uh, NCAA. Next to Wally is Jeffrey Mishkin, is, who is a partner at Skadden Arps Law Firm in New York. Uh, his practice includes all aspects of sport law, such as antitrust, intellectual property, labor, and, wide, and a wide range of trial and appellate business litigation. He served as counsel for the amicus group of players, uh, players associations in the Fantasy Sports League case involving uh, CBC distribution 
in marketing and the Major League Baseball advanced media. Uh, next, we have Clay Walker, who is the executive vice president and general manager of Fantasy Sports Ventures and is the founder and former chairman of the Fantasy Sports Association. Next to him, we have Robert Corn Revere, who is a partner at Davis Wright Tremaine Law Firms here in Washington, D.C. He's a leading authority in First Amendment law and media law. He's written extensively on First Amendment uh, issues, and um, uh, one of his most recent books is Freedom of Speech and Content Regulation on the Internet, Internet Law and Regulation. And then uh, on the far right is Glenn Wong, who has been a professor of sports management at the Eisenberg School of Management at the University of Massachusetts Amherst since 1979. He's an attorney, and he authored The Essentials of Sports Law. So, gentlemen, we thank you very much for giving us your time uh, and expertise today. And, Wally, we'll start with your comments. Good morning, President Kerwin and President Turner, commissioners and staff. I want to thank you for the opportunity to uh, and the invitation to come this morning and, and discuss these issues um, with you. As I understand what you have presented to the panel, there are two parts for consideration, commercialism and athletes' rights, and there is a focus on how these are impacted by new media and fan interactivity. These are interesting, but very complex topics, even though at first glance they appear to be relatively straightforward. We all believe we have a pretty good idea what commercialism means. At least we're pretty sure we know it when we see it. And we have a general sense that the less we see of commercialism connected with intercollegiate athletics, the better. But let's understand that commercial activity, when it is conducted appropriately, is not incompatible with not-for-profits such as higher education and intercollegiate athletics. Indeed, it is a part of the mission of any not-for-profit to generate as much revenue as possible, permissible under tax legislation, to advance the purpose for which it qualifies for not-for-profit status. In the case of colleges and universities, that purpose is education and the entertaining qualities of their various programs, including theater, music, and intercollegiate athletics, does not diminish the educational value of those programs. With regard to college sports, we have come to accept that selling tickets to attend athletics events, while clearly a form of commercialism, is acceptable. We are okay with a limited display in many venues, although not all, through signage of a corporate entity sponsorship of college sports. We understand that the broad interest by the public in certain sports at certain institutions makes those sports attractive to television and other media, and that advertisers will underwrite that interest. All of these are examples of commercialism, but we have developed a level of acceptance, if not universal comfort, with such practices. Increasingly, however, there are examples of commercialism associated with college sports that many consider intrusive. That especially seems to be the case where commercial interests seek a better defined link or relationship to the student-athlete himself or herself. That relationship, it is commonly held, confronts the concept of amateurism and the propriety of higher education. Athletes' rights in this regard, in generally, are perhaps a little less well understood. For example, courts have held that merely being an athlete doesn't include the right to participate. That, the courts uh, say, is a privilege, 
Athletes have the same rights as other citizens, of course, but those are not exclusive. Some who follow college sports, maybe even most, believe student-athletes have the right to be protected from exploitation by commercial and professional interest. In fact, that is less of a right of the student-athletes than a responsibility described in the NCAA bylaws assigned to the association and distributed to its member institutions to ensure at a local level. We have come to understand that exploitation, like commercialism, however, is a confrontation to amateurism, and as one observer of intercollegiate athletics noted recently, all that goes with it. Not specifically identified by the Commission for this panel, but often included directly in broad discussions or lingering as a subtext, is the impact of professionalism on college sports. The emulation by individual institutions and intercollegiate athletics as an enterprise of the business-based approaches, expansive stadiums and arenas, private suites, high-dollar compensation packages for coaches, uh, product endorsement by athletics personnel, expensive marketing and promotional efforts, all associated with professional sports, is troublesome to many when undertaken by intercollegiate athletics. Allow me for a moment, then, to bring some context to these concepts, commercialism, professionalism, and amateurism, and to explore the ambivalence that has developed as these concepts apply to intercollegiate athletics. Commercialism associated with college sports is as old as intercollegiate athletics itself. Indeed, the very first recorded intercollegiate athletics event, a rowing regatta between Harvard and Yale in 1852, came about at the urging of James Elkins, superintendent of the Boston, Concord, and Montreal Railroad, who wanted to sell tickets to fans who would travel and watch the event. Rowing regattas became a regular event among Ivy League teams, and soon stands were being erected for fans to watch from if they bought a ticket. Local businesses were advertising their services to the fans and boosters, and communities were building stadiums for the new game of football by the turn of the 20th century. Athletics teams, mostly student-run at the time, helped offset the cost of equipment and travel with dollars from commercial entities or commercial activities. Now, if we fast-forward more than a century, and athletics departments today are just as eager and just as in need of revenue from commercial entities and activities to offset not only the cost of the sport generating such revenue, but all the other teams sponsored by the institution. Radio and television have added both to the exposure of college sports and considerably to its revenue streams. And new media platforms are creating opportunities more quickly than we can comprehend either their potential or their impact. So commercialism is as old as college sports, as embedded in the financial structure of intercollegiate athletics as philanthropy is in all of higher education, and as critical to the continued sponsorship of athletics as ensuring the educational value of participation in college sports is to its very existence on campus. In short, commercialism is here to stay. Elements of professionalism, paid coaches, structured infrastructures with compensated personnel, marketing and promotion, are also nearly as old as professional uh, athletics. It wasn't long after the first Harvard-Yale rowing regatta that both teams hired former rowing alumni to coach them. And as new sports were added to intercollegiate athletics, there was a clear need for organization and professional personnel to coordinate the efforts. These are relatively acceptable elements of professionalism. But what bothers us more are the marketing, promotional, and game environment attributes in college sports that are often indiscernible from the professional model of sports. 
What this tells us, it seems to me, is that our ambivalence is not associated solely with commercialism and professionalism per se, but rather with the scale and scope of specific practices that impinge on what we hold as the inviolate attributes of amateurism. Being a little commercial is okay, but being really good at it begins to make us uncomfortable. As a society, however, we are not necessarily of one mind about what amateurism means. It is a term that we inherited from Europe uh, where it had as much or more to do with class distinctions as it did with athletics uh, classification. It was a way to ensure that the upper class, the wealthy, did not have to compete alongside commoners who could not afford to participate in sports without financial support. For the students in 19th century colleges and universities and the organizers of intercollegiate athletics that followed, amateurism never insinuated class divisions. When the NCAA was established shortly after the turn of the 20th century, the principle of amateurism was memorialized in the association's bylaws and directed that, quote, participation should be motivated primarily by education and by the physical, mental, and social benefits to be derived. Student participation is an avocation, end quote. But in the minds of many, both cynics and devoted followers, it is difficult to align participation as an avocation with the commercial and professional practices associated with what we loosely term big-time college sports. The critical point that I wish to make this morning is that these concepts are not mutually exclusive of one another. Rather, we appear to be forever engaged in a process of testing the scale at which two of these concepts, commercialism and professionalism, are practiced and therefore impact the third concept, amateurism. In an economic environment where traditional resources for the support of higher education and its various components, including intercollegiate athletics, are at best becoming more restricted and in many cases drying up, commercialism will and should not only be tolerated but encouraged. For decades, higher education has explored and exploited ways in which it can monetize its asset, including its intellectual property. And colleges and universities have encouraged intercollegiate athletics to seek outside sources of revenue as a means of diminishing institutional subsidization. Adopting the practices of professional sports that enhance exposure, enrich affinity, and heighten commercial interests, while not wholly aligned with efforts elsewhere in higher education to achieve similar results, does not automatically diminish the principle that student-athletes should be primarily motivated to participate in sports as an avocation. The heart and soul of amateurism, it seems to me, is the concept that college and university athletes are students rather than employees who participate for remuneration. That is the essence of the collegiate model. Those who participate are students, not employees. The problem is that we mistakenly extend the concept of amateurism to the enterprise itself. To be clear, student athletes are amateurs. Intercollegiate athletics is not. What does all that mean for the topic before us today, especially with regard to the impact of new media and fan interactivity? For those of us who grew up and worked most of our careers before the creation of cable and the Internet, the well-ordered world of newspapers and three television networks has been turned on its head. As a result, we have more information on intercollegiate athletics and on student-athletes than ever before. But we need to understand that such information does not equate to commercial product. It is simply information. The rate of development of new platforms for delivery and application of such information, however, 
challenges our capacity to view it for what it is. From the days when we understood that we had to wait for the game of the week, or when telephones, even cell phones, did not have screens, or when computers were number crunchers uh, and not personal handheld communication devices, we now progress through the technology of miniaturization at a rate of speed that overwhelms our processes for trying to govern such new applications. Indeed, if there is one thing we have learned in this rapidly changing environment, we cannot rely on rules and regulations to harness the potential of new technologies and applications. Rules are likely to be undone by the newest technology before they are even printed and distributed. Instead, we must learn to depend on commonly held principles that guide rational application at national conference and campus levels. To that end, the NCAA has a task force of presidents, athletics directors, and commissioners working to develop principles that should guide intercollegiate athletics in terms of commercial activity. What will undoubtedly emerge from this exercise in part will be reaffirmation of the principle that a student athlete cannot use his or her name, likeness, or athletics reputation for pay, that the name or likeness of student athletes cannot be used to directly endorse commercial products, that the NCAA, a conference, or an institution cannot grant the use of name or likeness to endorse a product, and that student athletes and their institutions must agree to the use of game performance video indirectly associated with commercial activities, the Chevy Player of the Week is a long-standing example. The status of, of college, uh, the college athlete as a student will be paramount in the task force uh, work product. Beyond that, it will be difficult for the task force to set rules and regulations that universally apply to the entire spectrum of NCA member institutions. Rather, principles will have to be developed by the institutions and conferences themselves but should comport with the values held common within higher education. What should and, and hopefully will emerge also is an understanding that the relationship between intercollegiate athletics and commercial entities should be a reciprocal one. It would be naive to suggest that commercial interests are not attracted to college sports because of their popularity. But those commercial entities also understand and do not want to disturb the central reason for that popularity the emotional and intellectual connection between the college or university and the student-athlete. We should do all we can to encourage that connection. For if it is broken, if college athletes simply become paid employees and intercollegiate athletics devolves to nothing more than a campus-based entertainment business, interest will wane, and college sports as an educational component of the campus will be undone. The popularity of college sports is not based on the quality of the competition. It is based on the quality of the relationship between the student-athlete and higher education. So what is clear is that principles aligned with higher education as a host for intercollegiate athletics should guide commercial behavior rather than our floundering in search of ham-handed new rules and regulations with the advance of each new media platform. Before I conclude, I want to touch specifically on the Fantasy League phenomenon. The NCA shares the Knight Commission's concern that Fantasy League's and the use of their names push student-athletes further along the continuum toward the status given professional athletes. We would prefer that the names were not used, and we believe such use violates NCA regulations. Indeed, we have informed any and all producers we could identify of our position. In at least one jurisdiction, however, a federal court has held that the right of an athlete determined, to determine when and how his or her name, likeness, and statistics will be used 
is outweighed by the right of the first of, of free speech. This undoubtedly is a debate not yet concluded, including its applicability to student athletes. We have discovered that in at least one instance, the producer of a specific fantasy league claims it has been using student athletes' names for the last dozen years. If the claim is true, we should note that the amateur status of student athletes has not been altered by the practice. We don't like it. But as NCA President Miles Brand has written, the use of names in this instance does not appear to be a tipping point toward excessive commercialism. It is an issue we will continue to monitor. In the meantime, we have worked with CBS and the Fantasy League industry leader, and we are prepared to work with others to manage how names are used and to discourage them from using student-athlete images. I want to again thank the Commission for the invitation to present this morning and for indulging my effort to put the practices of commercialism, professionalism, and amateurism into context. Thank you. Wally, we thank you, and uh, especially for the fact that you, I think, cut short a trip in, in China to be with us today, and uh, are only 24 hours from Beijing, I think. I'm, I'm Something almost like awake. <laughs> <laughs> Let me uh, ask, if I could, that the uh, panelists uh, limit their comments to about eight minutes, because we want to have plenty of each, each uh, to eight minutes, so that we have plenty of time for discussion before this session ends. Jeffrey, we're ready for your comments. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. <clears throat> Thank you, members of the Foundation, for the invitation. I'm very, very pleased to, uh, to be here uh, to speak with you this morning. Uh, I want to talk uh, this morning specifically about the decision of the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals in the CBC case, which uh, I think uh, most of you know, um, held that the um, uh, unauthorized use of the names and statistics of professional baseball players by fantasy leagues was a violation of the uh, player's right of publicity, but was nevertheless protected and permitted by the First Amendment. And the question that I want to speak to today is whether the CBC decision would necessarily also apply to the unauthorized use by fantasy leagues of the names of collegiate athletes. My own view, for what it's worth, uh, is that the CBC case does not require the same result for collegiate athletes as it did for professional athletes. In my view, the unauthorized use of the names of collegiate athletes for commercial purposes, such as the publication of a fantasy league game, would not be protected by the First Amendment and would be an unlawful violation of the student-athlete's right of publicity. In order to explain why I think that, I need to summarize just a little bit what the court said in the CBC case. In that case, the Federal Court of Appeals in St. Louis recognized that the use of a professional athlete's name in a fantasy league game without the athlete's consent was a violation of the athlete's right of publicity. But the court went on to say that in a right of publicity case, you have to balance the unauthorized use of someone's name or likeness against the principles of the First Amendment and make a determination in each case whether the right of publicity on the one hand, or the principles of free speech on the other, should predominate in that particular case. In the CBC case, the court concluded that with respect to professional athletes, the First Amendment should predominate because, in the court's view, the use of a professional player's name in a fantasy league game without that player's consent was not a very serious invasion of the right of publicity for several reasons. First, the players' names and statistics were already in the public domain because that information appeared in the newspapers every day. 
Second, the use of a player's name in a fantasy league game did not, to any significant degree, deprive a professional player of his ability to earn a living. The players would still be able to earn multi-million dollar uh, contracts and to secure endorsement and uh, sponsorship income. In other words, the professional players just wouldn't be hurt very much economically if they lost the ability to charge fantasy league publishers for the right to use their names. On the other side of the equation, uh, the First Amendment side, the CBC court found that a fantasy league game is entitled to substantial First Amendment protection because it provides entertainment, and at least in the view of that court, a fantasy league game helps to educate and inform people about a player's performance and statistics, and for that reason, the First Amendment trumped the right of publicity. I have a strong disagreement with the court over that conclusion. Uh, My own view is that a fantasy league game is a commercial product, pure and simple. It is not really intended to educate or inform. It is not in any way a substitute for a newspaper uh, that does provide news and information. And a fantasy league game is a commercial product based almost entirely on the unauthorized use of the commercial value of players' names. But my purpose today, again, is not principally to criticize the CBC decision, although I could and I have, as the chairman mentioned, uh, and in the interest of full disclosure, I filed a friend of the court brief in the CBC case on behalf of the National Football League, the National Hockey League, the NBA, the WNBA, the PGA Tour, and NASCAR, all arguing that the First Amendment did not trump the player's right of publicity. But again, my purpose today is not to re-argue the CBC case, but rather to ask the following question. Assuming, for the sake of discussion, that the CBC decision is correct with respect to professional athletes, is it also correct with respect to collegiate athletes? And I believe those would be two very different cases. The right of publicity is based on the inherent right of every human being to control the commercial use of one's own identity. In many cases, perhaps in most cases, a well-known person whose identity has commercial value wants to exploit that commercial value for his or her own economic benefit, and for that reason is very likely to object when someone else tries to make money by using that person's identity for a commercial purpose without consent and without paying for it. That was the basis for the professional players' argument in the CBC case. They wanted to maximize the financial benefits available to them through the commercial use of their own identities. For the professional player, it was entirely an economic issue. But the right of publicity also and equally protects those who do not want their identities commercially exploited. The right of publicity exists not merely to ensure that a famous person can reap the greatest possible financial rewards from the commercial use of his or her name, but also to protect anyone who opposes commercialization of his or her identity from being subjected to the involuntary commercial exploitation of that identity by third parties. And to me, that is the great difference between the case of a professional athlete whose goal is to maximize economic return, and the case of a collegiate student-athlete who is prohibited by long-standing and deeply-rooted principles of amateurism 
from making any commercial use of his or her name or identity. The stark difference in these two cases can be seen very clearly, I think, by considering the following. In the CBC case, if the Fantasy League publisher had offered to pay a license fee to the professional players for the use of their names, the players would have happily accepted and the case would have been over. But if a Fantasy League publisher uh, wanted to use the names of student-athletes and offered to pay a license fee, the student-athlete could not accept the fee. That case would have to continue. And so the legal balance to be drawn between the right of publicity and the First Amendment, in my view, is going to be very different for a student-athlete than it would be for a professional athlete. In the CBC case, the professional athlete's interest in the right of publicity was found to be weak because allowing fantasy leagues to use the player's name was not going to impair that player's earning capacity by very much. But in the case of a student-athlete, where the question has nothing to do with earning capacity, allowing third parties to commercialize the player's name destroys the underpinnings of that portion of the right of publicity that protects the wishes of anyone who does not want to have his or her identity commercialized at all. And therefore, again in my view, the interest of the student athlete in the protection of his or her right of publicity is very strong. So while the free speech aspects of a fantasy league game may be sufficient to outweigh the modest impact on a professional athlete's desire to earn as much money as possible, I do not believe that the First Amendment interest in protecting fantasy league games would or should outweigh the basic right of student-athletes, their universities, and the NCAA to uphold and preserve the traditions of amateurism. And that is the issue on which the case of a student-athlete against a fantasy league would turn. There are, of course, uh, no guarantees in litigation, but in my view, the student-athletes and their universities would have the far better of that argument should they choose to bring such a case. And that is all I want to say at the moment and look forward to any questions when we get to that portion of the uh, panel Thank you very much. Thank you, very much. Uh, thank you. I uh, also appreciate the invitation from Amy and from the Commission and from the members. Thank you. And I also appreciate Wally's uh, setting the context for this discussion. I certainly won't go eight minutes, although I do teach at George Washington University. I don't have any prepared remarks, as the other gentlemen have. Uh, you may be surprised to hear that as the founder and former chairman of the Fantasy Sports Association, that I actually don't have a very different opinion about the commercialization of these rights as these other two gentlemen do. In fact, I worked at the NFL Players Association for 13 years and was the first person, and first we became the first organization, to license the players' names, likenesses, and images in a fantasy sports context. I also will add in that in 2003, we had our own lawsuit against CBC. That was in the Second Circuit. We settled that. I was involved in the case, in fact, was the one who settled that case with CBC. Uh, I think that, that and I, I really do believe the NCAA should be looking at this issue, that the Knight Commission should be looking at this issue. We at the Fantasy Sports Association, which our members include Yahoo, ESPN, Fox, the NBA, the NFL, all the major media companies that produce fantasy sports are not taking a position that this is not commercial. We're not taking a position that this is permissible. 
we are neutral. And as these organizations have stood behind that principle since the very beginning of our trade association, our goal is to promote the industry. If the courts rule that you do not need to have a license from professional sports leagues, we will abide by that. If they rule that you do not, we'll abide by that as well. So from our perspective, uh, we are waiting to see what the final decision is from the NCAA, from the courts. As, as uh, Jeffrey mentioned, the CBC case is settled, but there is another case that has just been filed, and that is the NFL Players Association and CBS. CBS filed that case in Minnesota, which is the same circuit as the CBC case. There is some debate about whether or not that case will be able to go forward in Minnesota because CB, or excuse me, CBS actually filed the lawsuit against the NFL Players Association rather than NFL Players, Inc. Players, Inc. has countersued in Florida. When I was at the NFL Players Association, we actually had a case in Florida that we won. It was against a company called Gridiron.com. That company asked permission of approximately, and this was when Chris was in the league, approximately 155 players to use their name and likeness for essentially a, I guess, a precursor to Facebook, where you had a, an athlete blog, the athlete could write about himself and post pictures. Well, they also used 300 or 400 other professional athletes from the NFL in a fantasy sports game. They did not ask their permission. Ultimately, the judge said, that's a commercial activity. You have asked a certain set of these players if you can use their image, but you have not asked another set of these players if you, if you can use their image. We think the Second Circuit, or excuse me, 11th Circuit of Florida, believes that that is a commercial activity. So the NFLPA won that case that's on the books, which is in conflict with the decision in the CBC case. So it'll be interesting to see over the next months and perhaps even years how that case will, will turn out. But it will have an impact because, as Jeffrey has pointed out, the current case has thrown this into conflict with the principles of amateurism. In Florida, they have already on the books a different decision which would be more in line with the NCAA's position of amateurism because it states that fantasy sports is commercial. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, good morning. I'd like to thank you for inviting me to speak today. Thanks, Amy, for the invitation. Um, and uh, I, too, will not have a prepared statement. We'll just uh, um, start with a few um, reflections that hopefully will become part of the conversation. I should start with a disclaimer. I'm not here speaking on behalf of any client. Uh, I have not been um, involved in any of the cases uh, that uh, we've been talking about this morning. And in fact, uh, just to be clear, since CBS is a client of, in other cases, I'm not representing CBS in any of these matters. I've been invited uh, purely to talk about some of the general First Amendment considerations that go into these types of cases and hopefully uh, through that advance the uh, overall dialogue on the issue. Starting with first principles, the First Amendment protects widely the dissemination of information in society. This includes not just political information as we're in the middle of an election year and news, it also protects the dissemination of information involving entertainment and art 
Uh, it's a uh, distinction that previously had been drawn by courts, and some scholars still draw a distinction between the types of protections under the First Amendment for purely political speech or information or news versus art or uh, information you might read in the style or the sports section compared to uh, the front page of the newspaper. There simply isn't that distinction. As a matter of fact, in 1948, the United States Supreme Court went on to say that the line between those issues is too elusive for the court to try and distinguish the levels of protection that are provided for those different levels of uh, types of information. Another issue that has been critical in the development of First Amendment jurisprudence has been advent of technology. From the beginning of the adoption of the First Amendment, new technology was the key to the protections under the First Amendment. The printing press itself was the new technology of its time, the only method of mass dissemination of information and uh, the only private business, private institution that was mentioned in the Constitution and expressly adopted as an essential component of our political system. Since case law has more um, fully defined the extent of our First Amendment rights, technology has played a key role. And as a result, many of our thorniest questions under the First Amendment have involved what is the medium of communication. The Internet and the advent of more interactive forms of communication have made those problems even more difficult. Initially, as the court was, um, the Supreme Court was faced with its first decision where it had to establish whether or not the Internet was protected to the same degree as traditional media, it for the first time reached the conclusion that in fact the Internet is fully protected. And in the words of the Supreme Court in 1996, 1997, I'm sorry, went on to say that the Internet is never-ending worldwide conversation and talked about the attributes of a global medium. As a result, the court reached the conclusion that despite the fact that we face greater challenges as a result of speech that's made available by new media of communication, that the First Amendment applies fully. Let me shift gears a little bit and talk uh, uh, somewhat about the um, rights of publicity that have been at the center of some of the recent controversies. The right of publicity is something that didn't exist in American law until the 1950s, began to develop as a matter of common law, and has been adopted by a number of states in statute and also common law protections. About half the states have protections for rights of publicity. Um, from the beginning, courts have recognized that there is an inherent tension between those protect First Amendment interests in the dissemination of information and the right of publicity. And the Supreme Court, for the first time in 1977, uh, drew that distinction in a case called Zucchini versus Scripps Howard Broadcasting. That case involved a news clip in which a news program um, presented the entire act of the human cannonball. And as a result, um, Mr. Zucchini uh, sued and um, argued that this was a violation of his right of publicity. The court noted in particular that this was an an expropriation of his entire act and held that while there was an inherent um, interest in the information in his act, to take the entire act went too far and present it. And so it uh, concluded at the time that there was a balance that had to be drawn between the protection of the First Amendment interest in disseminating information versus the right of the individual to protect that commercial interest. Uh, That law has developed over the last 50 to 60 years uh, to the point that we've seen, um, for example, parity uh, trading cards. 
depicting uh, Major League Baseball players protected as parody under the First Amendment, despite the fact that the players sometimes object to having their caricatures uh, placed on trading cards. And we see it most recently in the CBC distribution and marketing case in which Uh, the fantasy uh, baseball leagues um, were were held to have a First Amendment right to present that information. Uh, The Supreme Court uh, considered whether or not to review the Eighth Circuit uh, decision and declined to take the case. Uh, I am not here to really present a position on that. I would say that the Eighth Circuit decision is consistent with the level of First Amendment protection that has evolved in this area. And um, I would take issue somewhat with uh, uh, Jeffrey's characterization of this being a commercial product, pure and simple, uh, only to the point that many speech and expression-related products are protected by the First Amendment. If you really want to characterize it that way, a newspaper is a commercial entity, and that fact does not deprive it of First Amendment protection. There are numerous decisions that talk about the fact that the commercial nature of a speech activity does not alter the level of First Amendment protection um, to the extent that it's based on the commercial uh, use of players' names. That is the very reason the courts so far have indicated that there is a strong interest and a strong First Amendment interest. The fact of the names and the statistics involved in the games is the reason why uh, there has been a strong interest in disseminating the information. The question that he asks, though, is a very good one, whether or not the same principles that were reached by the Eighth Circuit in the CBC distribution and marketing case would extend necessarily to a case involving student-athletes. I don't know that you can look to a case and find an answer to that question uh, right away, but the fascinating part of that question is that in the CBC distribution case, the question was about who benefits from the exploitation of publicity rights. But here, the question being discussed today is whether anybody should benefit from the exploitation of of publicity rights. Uh, And so that fundamentally alters um, some of the questions that a court uh, would have to ask. Some states, for example, don't grant publicity rights if someone hasn't exploited them on their own. So that it raises initially a question under the applicable uh, publicity law of, of a given jurisdiction before you even get to the constitutional question. But again, I think that it's going to be um, something we'll see resolved over a series of cases as uh, we move forward in the future. I don't have a prediction for you. Uh, I, I'm not as confident as uh, Jeffrey in a particular outcome, uh, but it is one that is going to go to the heart of the, the balancing act that the Supreme Court recognized in the Zucchini case. Good morning. Thank you very much for inviting me to participate in this section, in this session on commercialism in sports and athletes' rights in the 21st century. I have been asked to discuss this topic from a broader viewpoint. In the first part of my remarks, I will discuss the college sports landscape. In the second part, I have been asked to present some different business models for the Knight Commission members to consider if rules are liberalized to permit more commercial use of athletes' names and likenesses. I have had many different experiences with college athletics, all of which have helped shape my comments today. I was a student athlete in college, and in my career, I have been a faculty member studying sports law issues as well as college athletics. During this time, I have also spent time as an administrator, NCAA committee member, and faculty athletics representative to the NCAA. 
Today, my comments are from the perspective of another role I have had as an arbitrator for Olympics and professional sports cases, as an outside third party who is charged with providing a fair and unbiased opinion. Let me first start with commercialism. Some say that it is already here and that there is already too much commercialism in college athletics. Others say that it is not a problem. Reviewing a definition of commercialism does not solve the problem. It is defined as the practices, methods, aims, and spirit of commerce or business, an attitude that emphasizes tangible profit or success. In my opinion, there's a lot of room for subjective judgment with the definition of commercialism, especially with the words profit or success. Further complicating this issue is that the NCAA, its conferences, and member institutions do not control all areas of commercialism even if there might be an, ag an agreement on defining commercialism. Let's look at what I refer to as a college sports industry. At the core are the school's conferences in NCAA. It includes schools that differ significantly in size, mission, sports offerings, philosophy, and finances. There is also a great deal of commercial interest in some sports, and there is none whatsoever in other sports. The rest of what comprises the college sports industries are many other parties who have varying interests in this industry, some for profit, others nonprofit. Some of these parties are partially or totally beyond the control of the NCAA, its schools and conferences. These include bowl championship series, basketball tournament organizers, corporate sponsors and advertisers, fantasy game providers, television media and new media, video game manufacturers, student athletes from countries outside the United States, agents, attorneys, advisors representing student athletes, sporting good manufacturers, and the Olympic movement. The big picture bottom line is this. There's not one organization that controls the college sports industry with rulemaking and decision-making authority. Therefore, drawing a straight, consistent line between amateurism and commercialism is very difficult with these vast differences in interests. This is, in short, a complicated problem with many different parties. I do not believe there's a single easy solution. Here are some of the different business models for the Knight Commission members to consider. In light of the trends towards more commercial uses of athletes' names and likenesses, I will start with the two extremes. The first is all out, which means a rollback of all the current vestiges of commercialism. This may mean, again, subject to debate and interpretation of commercialism, reducing seasons, schedules, salaries, television appearances, and sponsorships. The advantage of, of the all-out model is that it would preserve amateurism. The major disadvantages are the financial and logistical problems of significant reductions in athletic budgets. There will also be potential legal problems, such as contracts, antitrust, and Title IX considerations. Federal legislation may be required to accomplish a rollback. At the other end of the spectrum is all-in, or the semi-professional model, which means selecting certain sports, such as football, men's basketball, women's basketball, and hockey, into for-profit businesses unrelated to the educational mission. It would allow athletes to be paid, sign endorsement contracts, be represented by agents, and make attending school optional. The advantage 
of All In is that proponents say this model better represents the current and future direction of big-time college athletics. Some disadvantages of the all-in model are the tax implications for these for-profit teams and income taxes for, for, for athletes, workers' compensation and insurance issues, employment contracts, and the potential unionization of athletes. Another business model for your consideration is what I refer to as a trust fund arrangement, which would establish a trust fund system for certain athletes who have a potential professional career. This model would allow student-athletes to enter into certain marketing and sponsorship contracts and or participate in certain events. The monies generated from these activities would then be put in a trust fund that would go to the student-athlete after his or her eligibility expired. There is also the option that the student-athlete could draw upon these funds while he or she is a student-athlete for certain, for certain activities, such as training expenses, living expenses, and insurance. The concept of a trust fund is not a new one. It was used in the 1980s in the United States track and field. The advantage of the trust fund arrangement is that it would maintain amateurism while allowing student-athletes to benefit from their commerciability on a limited basis while still in college. The disadvantage is that it would be the start of a slippery slope towards professionalism and opponents point to U.S. track and field where the trust fund was replaced by allowing professional athletes to compete. The final concept is what I call the Exceptional Student Athlete Fund. Under this model, a portion of the new revenues, including potential revenues from liberalizing rules and media, new media, and or television revenues would be put into a fund. The student athletes would be able to access these funds for specific purposes. The concept is not an entirely new one. The NCAA already has two funds set up under a similar format, the Special Assistance Fund and the Student Athlete Opportunity Fund. How under, under this model, athletes would be eligible for monies in the Exceptional Student Athlete Fund for various specific targeted purposes, many of which would reward student athletes who generated the revenues. Here are some ideas for the uses of these funds. One, payment of graduate school education. Two, provision and payment for career advice. Three, professional sports preparation courses and or seminars which would provide information on contracts, agent selection, finances, and the legal and, as legal and business aspects of professional sports. Four, exceptional student-athlete disability insurance for potential professional athletes, currently available for purchase by the student-athletes, but which in this proposal would be paid for from this fund. Internships, the payment of stipends for internships after graduation. Since oftentimes student-athletes do not have summers available to work, this will give them an opportunity to build their resumes. And last, the NCAA Job Corps would be a payment of stipends to former student-athletes to work in certain jobs in the nonprofit sector. So, for example, a former student-athlete could work for a boys or girls club or a local public school. I'm sure there's other models that can be proposed. Uh, however, I believe there's value uh, in the Knight Commission looking at the alternative business models because if the alternatives uh, are not better, 
that it may focus the parties on the task at hand, in other words, modernizing the current system to make it work better. Hopefully these thoughts will be helpful in your deliberations, and I'd like to thank you again for the opportunity uh, to present my viewpoints uh, before the Knight Commission. I'd be glad to answer any questions. Thank you very much, and let me thank uh, all of the panelists for excellent uh, presentations. I think you've framed this issue for us uh, exceedingly well, and uh, I'd now like to throw the floor open to my colleagues for uh, further discussion and uh, question. Who has the first? Gerald? Uh, Jeffrey, you mentioned that, uh, in your view, the model, uh, the decision that occurred uh, wouldn't have a great deal, of, may not have a great deal of applicability to intercollegiate athletics, and uh, gave some of the reasons that you felt that that was the case, and then uh, suggested you had a couple other things you might add on uh, that you cut off in the interest of time. Is there something else you'd want to add to that point? Jerry, not, um, not beyond the point that, uh, and I don't really disagree so much with Robert, that this, this would, uh, I'm, not, I'm not predicting uh, exactly how this would come out. Lawyers, you know, are very <clears throat> reluctant uh, to do that. I was simply pointing out the, what I think are some very great differences between um, the case that CBC decided and what the interest of the professional athlete was. Uh, there, there is a, there's a deeper issue here that affects this group's consideration and professional sports consideration too. It isn't just fantasy leagues. It's it's this never-ending tension between the First Amendment uh, and the exploitation of intellectual property. And I think that that Robert and I uh, would probably not be very far apart on on many issues. I, I tend to think we would each come down. It would be close, but I think we'd each tend to come down on the other side. Uh, simply because uh, Robert has devoted his time to study of the First Amendment. I've devoted my time to efforts to protect the ability of, of sports leagues um, and their athletes to, um, uh, to, to make commercial use of, uh, of, of their intellectual uh, property, and we have to recognize how difficult those questions are. Uh, you know, I, I sort of view it as a, as a continuum. If someone wanted to write an unauthorized biography of a college quarterback, uh, Robert and I together would argue that that's absolutely protected by the First Amendment. Nothing we could do about that or should do about that, no matter how much the athlete or the university did not like what was, what was written. That's a core First Amendment matter. On the other hand, if someone just decided to put the names of collegiate athletes on, on coffee cups, um, I would view that as um, a commercial activity principally, does it have any expressive value that the First Amendment might protect? I suppose it has very little. But in that case, I think the interest in protecting the right of publicity would be, would be very strong. But those, those are the two extremes. And as we get, as we get closer to uh, the middle, uh, it's going to become um, um, difficult. But I, but I do think that focusing on fantasy leagues, uh, and as I view what a fantasy league game is, uh, I would say again that um, it is much more a commercial endeavor than it is an expressive endeavor entitled to great First Amendment deference and consideration and that it is really built 
simply on using the commercial value of the names of athletes and, uh, and given um, the, uh, the differing interests that a professional athlete would have, the economic interest, and the interest that a student athlete would have uh, in simply trying to protect, assuming the athlete is interested in protecting it, um, the, um, uh, the amateurism principles that the amateurism principle, which was not considered at all by the court in CBC, would be a very strong value on the other side of the First Amendment. And my own view is that in that case, that value would be stronger than the simple, what I regard as the simple commercialization of the name in a, in a fantasy league. Henry? Well, this has been a very interesting discussion. And uh, I'm not a lawyer, and I can't opine on First Amendment rights versus other interests, um, or even on the applicability of the case which was just handed down recently to, um, to intercollegiate athletics. But I suspect, from the point of view of university presidents, the interest in this case, or in what might happen in fantasy leagues, really has not that much to do with those issues, First Amendment versus other rights and interests, as it has to do with this commercialization of athletics and where it would go and where it winds up. And I was interested in Glenn's different models for trying to deal with a vexing uh, set of issues and in a way kind of satisficing some of those issues with regard to um, how to deal with student athletes if not paying them outright, creating trust funds, blah, blah, blah. I just want to speak from the point of view of a major private university. Maybe I don't speak for my board, but I said something to Britt last night. The day that we go down this pipe, whether it's trust funds or outward uh, payment of athletes, is the day that the private, I, b I believe, the private universities who play big-time sports, um, uh, I wouldn't speak for Notre Dame here either, but I would have a guess, that the presidents and the boards will bail on the whole thing, that there simply will not be private universities, I can't say what I think about the publics, that will be interested in any kind of payment to student-athletes and going down this road of commercialization. If that nexus that you discussed of the break between student-athletes and the professionalization, I don't know exactly where that break would be, but I would suspect any of the models that Glenn discussed would be tipping points, for me at least. And then you'll have a withdrawal from uh, big-time athletics of the, I think, the major private universities. That's just a guess, but I think it's an informed guess from talking to lots of people. So that this has, um, from our point of view, this slippery path down the commercialization um, uh, is not so much this case, but where it might head us, uh, unionization, student athletes protecting what they see to increasingly be their rights, the kinds of points you discussed last night, Nick, and I think that's in a way why we're having heated conversations about this. Not so much the case itself, which has its interest, as to where it could conceivably go. Yes? athletes in protecting their own right to their personality, I think, has, I mean, that case could break a lot of things open when it goes to the court, and the question whether the NC2A and the practice of amateurism really, amateurism really makes sense in today's world. And, uh, and we talked yesterday about the challenge for the NC2A of taking a position, given the fact that the NC2A 
publicizes the information or encourages the schools to do it in such a way that it's very easy to easily accessible and it's out there and it's in the public domain already. But it seems to me that this is one of those cases where unless something is done, it has all sorts of potential for, uh, use the word mischief, not because it would be bad for athletes to have these rights. I think they should have their rights back. But it's a way to have things fall apart unnecessarily. I wondered. Well, yeah, I, I think this case, um, and, and I agree, it, it isn't this case alone uh, or the complicated legal issues that it, it raises, but it's the much more fundamental question, the, um, the assault uh, on the ability to maintain amateurism, if, if that remains an important, I think it does in many places, here and others. Um, uh, but if, if the principles of amateurism uh, uh, are, are important, a case like this has to create great concern because uh, the, the forces of commercialization are ever vigilant uh, in seizing opportunities. And so what this case uh, portends probably, almost certainly, is beyond fantasy leagues. It, it, it's just, it's the same issue, whether it's a right of publicity in a fantasy league game or an electric uh, you know, video game uh, or in, in more of, of the typical kinds of commercialization. Uh, it, um, uh, athletes' names, famous people's names, are out in the public domain. They're out there. And if being out in the public domain is somehow enough to mean that anybody can commercialize it, then you, there isn't much left of the right of publicity or the ability to preserve amateurism. Can I, can I add to that and answer Anita's question as well? As, uh, as Wally pointed out, the NCAA has been involved in commercialized activities, but not to the extent of commercializing the athlete's name. And specifically, one of the things it has not done is to put the current student athlete's names on jerseys. Certainly. At Georgetown, you could sell a lot of jerseys of basketball players. Instead, they sell them without the player's name on them. It's a lot of money that is not being made, and that protects the amateur principle there. The same is true with video games as well. In terms of Electronic Arts makes the NCAA football games, but does not include the player names and images. Uh, what I And I'm not a lawyer as well, and I certainly feel free to make suggestions as you have as well. What Robert pointed out is that the rights of publicity, they're not in every single state. And even if they are in the state, they're all different. So each state could potentially reach a different conclusion. And my point about the Florida case with the NFL Players Association is that there is a different decision in the, in the instance of rights of publicity. Perhaps what the NCAA or maybe someone like Tim Tebow would consider is if his name is being used without his authorization in Florida, that he would sue the company or companies that are using his particular name. Because that case is different than the case, or the outcome in that case was different than the CBC case in Missouri. Yes, Elsa. You know, this is a really fascinating conversation, and thank you all for, for being a part of it. Um, it. It's pretty clear when you have an institutional issue um, that is in lockstep with the athletes' issues. Um, but what happens when they are divergent? 
I mean, who represents the student athlete? Um, you know, you, you talked about uh, Thibault. Um, you know, who would represent him? Uh, obviously, he could do it himself, but there is a question about the financial wherewithal to do that. I mean, who is the voice, the advocate, if you will, for student athletes? swing in this direction. Obviously, in a number of, of instances, the NCAA has been that voice. For example, in, in, in instances when uh, in, individual uses by commercial entities of student-athletes' likeness, more often than, than name, frankly, um, are discovered, the, the requirement is that um, the institution will, on behalf of the student-athlete, send a letter to that commercial entity indicating that it should cease and desist from the use of that image. In the case of the Fantasy Leagues, the, the national office itself assumed that role for each of the institutions. Each of the institutions could have done that, but it seemed to be more practical for the association uh, uh, to do so. Understand that throughout all of that, uh, what, what has happened is a, is a letter informing that commercial entity that it had violated um, the use of a student-athlete's name or likeness uh, and directed it to cease or desist. It is not, there's, no, there's no particular authority behind that. And so the degree to which that is enforceable has, um, has in the past generally generally been a question that, that never came up because those were local commercial entities that wanted to continue a relationship with that university and did indeed cease and desist. Probably didn't even realize they were doing something they shouldn't have. In this instance, it's, it's quite a different issue. And I think, while this is an important issue um, because I am not clear who will serve as, as the advocate for our student-athletes now. And this, this water, the water has become so murky, um, it's, it's fundamentally unclear to me. This, in this particular instance, I think that is uh, an incredibly important question. Who actually owns the right of publicity for those students? Right. Clearly, the students do. There's no question about that. Um, but then, uh, to whom would those students be prepared and willing uh, or interested in assigning the right for uh, then for some sort of case. Lenny, and then uh, Hadi. First of all, I'd like to uh, address Clay's, um, as he enumerated the different ways that, that people try to avoid this reference to players. I mean, that, that sounds well and good, but obviously that's a veil that gets pierced very easily. My 15-year-old can recognize any one of the athletes who's on there based upon you know, makeup based upon style of play and everything else. So, I mean, I, I, I think that while on paper that sounds good, but the reality is it is definitely referring to the individual players. Um, but more than anything, going to, to Elson's point, um, we talk about who is the voice for student-athletes. And, and as I looked at the CBC case, obviously what stands out is that this is application of Missouri law that has conferred this right of publicity. What, um, as far as an advocate for student-athletes, as an advocate for um, you know, I guess minors, unsophisticated, uh, supposedly unsophisticated student athletes who are working in their own interests as well as the university's interests. 
What is the possibility of um, legislation uh, that would confirm? We know we have common law uh, application, but we also have statutory application of right publicity. If every state took a look at their state university, and, and states have done it, I know Nebraska and others have done it in, in ways that have, have tried to apply um, certain principles to help student-athletes going beyond what we would normally see. I mean, what would be the, the problem with states protecting their student-athletes through conferring uh, some sort of right of publicity on, on the basis that we're talking here? Uh, because, as I said, it seems that, as Elson said, that there has to be a voice somewhere. And, and this is not essentially carving out anything different. It may be just essentially fine-tuning what the right of publicity is, and in states where it's just common law, to be able to, be able to establish something that gives people clear direction. And I know a lot of people are against uh, government interference, et cetera, but in this case, government certainly is going to use its police powers to protect those who can't protect themselves. So I'm just curious if you guys think that there is possibility of that. I don't know, Len, on a practical level, you know, whether you could interest how many state legislatures in doing it, but it, it really is certainly another way of doing it. And, and you're right, the right of publicity is simply a creature of state law, and only about 26 or 27 states recognize it. Uh, and in, in many of those states, it is a matter of legislation. And one of the things that the CBC court talked about uh, they, they were talking about um, the law of, um, of, was it Missouri or Missouri? Um, uh, but it, it was a more general discussion about the uh, interest that a right of publicity is intended to serve. And I think that given the, uh, uh, the fact that, that most of, of the cases under the right of publicity are brought by famous people who are concerned about themselves making as much money as they can, and there have been some by people who are not interested in commercialization. Cary Grant had a famous case, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar had a famous case where both of those famous people did not want to be commercialized at all, and they, they were commercialized. But I think that um, certainly state legislatures could carve out for student-athletes, how they wanted the right of publicity to apply. They, they couldn't, they couldn't uh, Robert will tell me right immediately, they, they couldn't change the First Amendment balance there, but they could explain uh, the importance in that state of protecting amateurism and, and, and giving student-athletes the right uh, because they cannot themselves and would not and remain student-athletes uh, the, uh, the right to um, commercialize their names, that that is a very important value that the state is trying to protect with the right of publicity. If that was clear by legislation, it would make the argument a lot easier than it was in the, in the CBC case. Well, and, and just let me follow sure. up by saying, I, I wouldn't expect it to be done in, say, North Dakota or someplace like that, but where there are clear interests to be protected in states like Florida, Texas, where, you know, sports is obviously very important, and, and university sports is extremely important, and I don't mean to leave, in, leave out Michigan or any other state, but in the end, I think there is an interest there that, that certainly where exploitation will occur, that there, there should be an interest, and it should be an, almost a responsibility to be able to protect those, again, who, you know, not even, most of these young people aren't even of the age of majority. If a state were to enact legislation of this kind, it would frame the debate that went forward in whatever you know, litigation followed, but uh, it wouldn't alter um, the limits imposed by the First Amendment. It would simply 
um, identify the factors that would be litigated in the balancing act. Harding and then Andrea. It's really interesting to me that uh, in every other aspect of life involving the student-athlete, the university claims to be the spokesman, the protector, the definer of the rules, the outliner of the parameters in which activities can take place. Right now, what I hear a lot about is, well, actually, this thing, because it's not locally connected, and because the NCAA has, in effect, said this doesn't seem to be a playpen right now that's going to be used for us to play in, that everybody's doing this on this issue because everybody says it. But it seems to me here the beginning place, before you ever get to a legislature, is for the various universities whose, after all, uniforms, if not the discernible outlines of the players are being used, would be the ones who would consistently, persistently, obnoxiously raise the issue again and again and again uh, until there was some visibility about the issue beyond uh, a court in one circuit uh, determining uh, one narrow uh, interpretation of what the rules ought to be. Uh, It would be nice, in fact, if the universities would, in this case, uh, be uh, quite as persistent in the student-athletes' rights as they are in some others which are more to the benefit of the university than the student-athlete themselves. I say that to my fellow commissioners here who are university presidents. It just seems to me this is one that you don't let up on. Right. Andrea? I'm going to take a sort of contrary position. Um, but first I want to remind Len about the University of North Dakota hockey team. That's fairly... Uh, <laughs> I just <laughs> Um, it, it just seems to me that the horse is really already out of the barn. Once the NCA decided not to take a strong stand, it seemed to me that, that um, um, we're, we're well down the road of, of heading into this fantasy sports league. And maybe I'm reading it wrong, but um, once the NCA didn't take a strong stand, it seemed to me it was over. And 50 states with 50 different laws would be like having every airline regulated differently in every state. And that's absurd. You don't want to head in that direction. You're already in the courts. It's going to be decided in the courts. And I guess from my perspective, I think all the ideas are interesting, but at the end of the day, this is a legal issue now. Am I correct? And that's where this discussion is, is going. Because you have a decision there that, that, uh, that, that I think they would uphold. Well, and, and the only other thing I, want to, I wanted to ask, because I haven't heard anyone address it, is... What rights do student athletes have once they sign a contract, once they, not a contract, once they accept a scholarship? What do, do those, what, what rights does that give them? Uh, the rights in connection with, with bringing a lawsuit, you mean? Uh, um, no, the rights in connection to publicity. You, you accept a scholarship. Right. You don't have rights is my point. Well, you know, I think student athletes have rights, and this is a this is a complication here that uh, uh, was only touched on uh, in the CBC case and in this new um, CBS interactive case, uh, and that is who, even in the professional side, is holding on to these rights because there are lots of contracts uh, floating around, and uh, I, I certainly have not looked closely enough at the contracts signed. Uh, by student athletes with their universities, they may they may differ to some extent, 
but I, you start with the proposition that, that a right of publicity is a personal right. It belongs to the student-athlete. Now, perhaps the student-athlete has given enough of it uh, in a contract to the university so that the university would have the ability to bring the lawsuit. I'm not at all sure that that's true, and it would be yet another legal complication um, uh, on the college side. But the one thing I'm very clear about, the right starts out being owned by the athlete himself or herself. And uh, who else might be able to advocate for it in a, in a legal, in a strictly legal sense, as a party to a case is going to be a, another difficult question uh, to figure out. Glenn wanted to add a point, okay. I think. If I could add something to that. Um, you know, if, if this case were to go forward, uh, I believe the plaintiffs with the best possibility of being successful in the case would be the student-athletes. Uh, the NCAA, I think, has a problem in terms of standing, and they would have some problems in terms of making the right of publicity argument uh, if they were the lead plaintiffs, if they were to file this particular case. They could come up with some other legal theories, but um, the right of publicity would not be as strong for them. Uh, in terms of the colleges and universities, uh, all student-athletes are required to sign a number of forms before they are deemed, be deemed eligible to play. And a lot of the forms are exactly the same um, in terms of amateurism and some things like that. In terms of the right of publicity, there is not an NCAA form. So what it comes down to then is what each school does individually in terms of their contract, usually through their sports information or media relations department, in terms of what permissions that department has to talk about things that the student-athlete has done. Um, that would be the contract that would be looked at to see if the student-athlete has, you know, given or assigned that right of publicity to the institutions. Uh, so certain institutions may have a better shot at being successful in litigation, arguing on behalf of the student-athletes. Uh, yet I still come back to the point where I think the student-athlete would, would have the best case. Uh, and some student-athletes would file a case and then possibly turn that into a class action. I'm not advocating the litigation route, but that would, I think that is my analysis of the three potential parties that could, could bring this litigation. Wally, you wanted to add a... Well, I, I, I simply want to, 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 I guess, clarify a, a point. I, I don't think that it is com either completely accurate or completely fair to suggest that the NCAA just did nothing on, on this. Um, we, we have and continue to examine this closely on a continuous basis. Um, in the absence of direct legal action, we have worked with the producers to try to um, mitigate the impact um, on the basis of, of the only court decision that we have available to us now to, to, to work with. Um, as I said in my comments, I do not think that this is a debate that is yet complete, including its applicability to, to student-athletes. Um, it is a position of the NCAs that we probably do not have standing to, to bring suit. Um, clearly, student-athletes do, and the question of, of whether institutions do um, may vary from institution to institution, or even jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Um, I suspect, I don't know this, I'm not an attorney, but, but I, I wonder if there aren't maybe also issues or, around FERPA that would, 
that would be involved in, in this as well. I know, for example, that you know that we've had to be careful with um, with even the kind of publicity we use with regard to information about student athletes to the degree that it is considered educational record. It's a Val, and then oh, excuse me, do you have another? I, I it seemed to some of us watching the NCAA action. Um, or, or lack thereof and lack of strong statements thereof in regards to this that um, um, that, that, that that has led down a slippery slope and, and maybe the NCA is still thinking about it but some of the colleges and universities felt very strongly when it happened and there seemed to be an you know, the, maybe the elephant in the room is some sort of a conflict with the NCA taking on CBS It would probably be a mistake to suggest that um, what you regarded as as a, as a lack of, infra, uh, of of action represented a lack of passion. We have uh, Val and then Lenny and then Jack. Well, I, I think Andrea actually sort of prefaced my question, which was for Wally, which spoke to the relevancy of the CBS connection to this game and whether the connection of, of you know your media partner to the game, whether that lent itself to a a particular type of solution, a contractual solution, a looking forward, and whether the analysis would have been different if it was CBS an independent was, group that had done the fantasy uh, game instead of CBS. CBS was the first producer that I'm aware of to receive the, the cease and desist letter, which is exactly the action that we would take in every other instance in which this type of commercial activity or intrusion on um, the student-athlete would, would take place. We understand and have always understood that that is a limited, very limited and very limiting um, action. Um, but we've never understood that we had the authority to go much further than that letter. CBS was the first one to get that. In some ways, there was a benefit that CBS is also viewed probably by most as the industry leader in, in fantasy leagues and and the place where we could have the greatest impact trying to mitigate the impact. Okay. Uh, Lenny. I'm going to mention it very quickly. I certainly want to, want to disagree with the idea that it's absurd to have 50 different laws. Every time there's a lawsuit, as we continue to talk, they have to apply state law. And if there was some clarity with state law, we're talking about lawsuits in each state, if there was some clarity as it pertains to student-athletes, you know, maybe we won't have as much litigation as we talk about, or the litigation where we primarily focus. That's all I'm saying. We already have 26, did you say 26 different? 26 or 7 states. Uh, yeah, I mean, in, in statute, statutory applications or, or, or uh, conferring the right of publicity. Uh, if states who had an interest actually had something that provided clarity, uh, I think it would be a little bit easier question right now with regard to who protects the student-athlete. So, so I don't think it's absurd for each state to have it because every time you, you sue, there, since there's no federal right, you have to apply, you probably will apply a state law or a state interpretation of it. But how, how do you deal with one school going to another state to play a game and then having publicity come out of that state, which might have different laws in the state the school is in. And, and I've not looked at this at all, I understand. Yeah, no, I, I'm just suggesting if you were going to have a statute of some sort that governed, it might be 
and, and not that I support something like that because I actually don't, but you would probably want a federal statute. Yeah, I, I'm saying it, but you treat don't. Treat everybody equally. But you probably wouldn't, and, and that's the point that I was making. And, and because of the, the tenets of the right of publicity, you know, there's, there's a, a framework there. The, the laws can't be that much different. I mean, even in each different state, they're they can't not, be they're that, not that different. different. They're, they're essentially the same. We, we were talking about a perhaps mm-hmm. specific legislation to deal with the specifics of collegiate athletes. Right. But, but the litigations here are not going to proliferate in 50 states because ultimately there's going to be a First Amendment component to every one of these. These are going to be federal cases. There, there are only so many circuits, and if there is enough diversity in the circuits as to how these cases come out, then the Supreme Court may, may be more interested. Uh, and I think ultimately Eventually. there could be a, a more national um, resolution uh, of it. But it would, not, it would not hurt in the case of collegiate athletes to have their rights spelled out, given the problem of, of exactly who's speaking for the student-athletes and, and whose right of publicity it is. It's the students, but the universities have an interest and the NCAA has an interest. It, it, legislation would be a nice way to sort of make it simpler, but at, at the end of the day... Well, it's not going to dispose of the question, no, but at the end of the, you, you've got, federal, you've got federal questions here, and it'll be decided by United States Circuit Court of Appeals and perhaps ultimately the Supreme Court. Something hangs here, which I don't quite understand. Uh, do we, in fact, have... Uh, a circuit shopping possibility here, as you've outlined it? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, in fact, this, this, the, what Mike outlined to us last night is not a single definitive decision in this area. Is oh, that right? Absolutely not. Okay, absolutely fine. Not. I know so that, in fact, in fact, rather than going to 50 states or saying we don't have a chance in court because we've already lost, that's wrong. In one court, we've won. In one court, we've lost. So circuit shopping would be obviously the way you go, right, in this thing? Yes. And it seems to me at this point, if anybody cares, you go circuit shopping. God forbid that I would say anything good comes out of a federal decision arising from Florida. But if it is possible, <laughs> if it is possible, I would sure as hell take the case down there and at least give a run at it and stop doing this right. until you do it. The case wouldn't involve counting votes. It would just... Yeah. We have uh, Jack... And then Jerry and, uh, okay, Cliff. Well, yeah. um, Hotting may, may just have identified one of the criteria that I was looking for, but I wanted to ask Glenn, uh, Jeffrey, and Robert for your thoughts. If there are three potential uh, institutions or individuals who could bring forward a case, you have the NCAA, which I think we've identified perhaps as the weakest position. You have the student, who perhaps has the strongest positions. But if we were looking for a university to do this, it may be in a, a university in a particular circuit, but are there other criteria that you believe are ideal in terms of the characteristics of a university that would bring forward a case in this manner? I'll answer. I wasn't asked, but I'll answer. <laughs> <laughs> I think, in my opinion, I think a public university is in a better position than a private university. That question, I think, is not susceptible of sort of a quick answer because it's going to likely affect other things between the university and the students that you're all going to want to think about. And it's the easiest way to look at it as we said before, the student athlete owns his or her own right of publicity. It can be assigned. 
uh, and in the uh, Major League Baseball case, it, it was assigned to Major League Baseball advanced media. In the football case, it was assigned to the, uh, well, <laughs> somewhere between the Players Union and, and this corporation that the players have, uh, Players Inc., that, that exploits the, the, the player's rights. So there are ways of assigning that right. But, you know, if you start assigning rights solely for the purpose of bringing a litigation, you have other questions. So it, it's, um, it, it's, a, it's a very important question, but not one that I think can be answered quickly. Well, it's, an, it's a complicated question from a litigation standpoint, but I think it's also a very complicated question from the standpoint of the NCAA rules that you're talking about, about uh, amateurism. Once you start talking about assigning rights to the university, you have essentially bought into the notion that this is a commercial enterprise, that uh, the students are assigning away the right to be uh, commercially exploited, whereas right now the rules... Depending on what we chose to do. Depending on what you chose to do. But uh, again, if you're talking about trying to create a a legal relationship so that uh, the universities would definitely have standing to uh, represent a student-athlete in a case like this... Um, it, it just seems like this bounces in a lot of different ways. Jerry? I would try it. Oh, excuse me. Glenn, did you I, want to add? I would just have you – I would take these considerations in mind. One is I agree with Clay. It would be a public institution. Second, I would look for a state, um, one of those 26 states that recognize the right of publicity. Um, third, I would check the contract between the university and the student-athlete to be working with a good contract. Uh, I would probably look for an institution that has had some student-athletes who have been well-recognized. Yet I would also look for an institution which does not have a lot of, quote, commercialism, unquote. Uh, So, for example, I think a lot of the institutions are on the fantasy games and have, have, are taking money for being on the fantasy game, giving up the right of the institution and their images and that sort of thing. If you find one that is not involved with having given up that right, I think that, that helps the case. Thank you. Oh, I'm so, oh, Jerry, yeah, that's right. You were next in line. I'm sorry. Um, let's assume a scenario in which the lawsuits have been filed and the uh, judgment is that the student has the right to their own identity, their own name, their own likeness. Um, so now we have all the student athletes that have that right. Now, invariably, some of them will, or inevitably, some of them will say, yes, it's okay for a fantasy league to use my name and likeness, and others will say no. Um, what do you see might be then the ensuing consequences of, the, of that reality then uh, with the pressures for, you know, my name is being used now very specifically, and if I were a pro athlete, blah, 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 but the NCAA says you accept money, you can't compete. Uh, you know, where might we go legally after that? Uh, what might be the outcomes in your, in your views? If, if the court were to say that the student-athlete had the right to say no and that a fantasy league could not use the student-athlete's name without consent, uh, then I think that it would become an NCAA issue again, and the NCAA you know, having now the, the legal basis to say, well, you, you can say no. Uh, But some of them say yes. Well, if they say yes, I would assume they'd lose their eligibility as they would now. If they try to commercialize. If they're not getting paid. If they're not getting paid. Um, That's above my pay grade. I turn that to the NCAA. I I still think that's a violation of NCAA rules. Correct. Even if they don't get paid. Even if they don't get paid. Right. 
So, in, so they can't say yes? They cannot say yes without losing their eligibility. So the choices are for the NCAA to change its rules. So from the student-athlete's um, point of view, this is kind of a moot point. Well, well, that's why I put some of these business models out there. There may be some ways to um, put that money aside for the student-athletes who generate that money if the NCAA agrees to that. To some extent, the, the Southeast Conference has, has, has um, done something uh, with its recent media contract, it's put $2 million aside from its future television revenues into academics. So under the same model, I would say that you, if, if there are increased monies coming into the NCAA and there's a recognition that there are certain student-athletes, the high-profile potential professional student-athletes who are generating this money, then put some money aside for them that they could draw upon that would benefit them. Okay. Them would be the problem. Uh, Cliff and Carol, and then I'm afraid we're going to have to uh, bring this session to a close. I haven't decided whether I have a, a comment or not. I, I, I would point out that, you know, after the last contract, as Glenn noted, the association set aside um, a uh, an amount of money that student athletes could, in fact, draw from for. In some instances, uh, it was for those who were Pell qualified. In other instances, uh, there was no such uh, qualification. Uh, there, in some instances, were um, ex uh, areas in which that could be used, and in, in others, there were not. So I think that you know that that sort of situation has existed and, and does exist, and I suspect will con continue to, to exist. Um, you know, I can't, I certainly wouldn't try to speak for what the membership would do, but I think you've heard from at least one president this morning who has, who has said that the trust fund route is not one of interest to a particular, he suspects, to a particular category of, of institutions. And, and I think that uh, if, the, if the public spoke, public institutions spoke, they would probably say the same sort of thing. Um, that doesn't mean that it, it may not eventually happen, but I would say that at this m moment in time, intercollegiate athletics is operating neither all in nor all out, but somewhere in between. Cliff? Uh, yes, thank you. Um, my uh, uh, question and comment, I think, is directed to Wally. Um, uh, Wally, I was uh, struck by your... Uh, historical perspective and presentation with regard to commercialism. And um, I think you began with the case of uh, crew races on Cambridge, uh, in Cambridge uh, along the river uh, and the building of the stands. And it set me to thinking about uh, the comment that you made subsequently in your remarks about uh, maintaining a separation between the uh, commercialization of the business of intercollegiate athletics and the protection and maintenance of amateurism on the part of the students, athletes. Um, and it made me wonder um, if uh, you have any views on what might be a prediction uh, which falls into the category of how long can you tread water uh, it relates to the fact that 
if one goes back to that uh, crew race and the level of um, money that was moving around in that process to the huge amounts of money that are sloshing around today, uh, there's an order of magnitude of difference which I think is, is very, very significant. Uh, and I think that there's a, an additional level of tension that go, goes far beyond the issue of freedom of speech and the right of publicity in this context. And that is that much of the discussion with regard to fantasy tends to concentrate on those current college athletes uh, who are perceived as high prospects for drafts and going into the professional teams. But there's a huge number of other current student athletes who are unlikely to ever get into that. There may be some marginal ones who might go into leagues uh, overseas. But what concerns me is that the size of the disparity between the amount of money perceived and actual that is floating around in this system compared to the lack of any real significance with regard to the student-athletes is such that one almost comes away with the image of, uh, I hate to say it, uh, you know, Mike Douglas and the Gladiators. Uh, who is it that's going to break out of this among those student-athletes? Uh, we keep talking about they are student-athletes, they're student-athletes, but their perception is, rightly or wrongly, they are part of the process of generating those revenues. And the amount that is involved is enormous. And so I guess well, my question is, uh, this is the issue of the fantasies to me is just one little element. There's a much broader issue of the growth in this disparity. And I guess it comes back to my question, how long can we tread water? Um. I think that's a great question. I think it's a very complex question, and we could spend the rest of the of the day, I'm I'm sure, uh, debating it. I I think I I did allude to many aspects of that in in my opening comments. I I do believe that the issue we have is with scale and scope. It isn't with the concepts of commercialism per se. Institutions are engaged in in commercialism in in a number of different ways. It's scale and scope, and it's our perception. Of, of scale and scope. I have argued for a long time that so-called big-time college sports generally are consistent with those institutions that we would consider big-time academic universities. Um, an example I've used because it's generally public information is Ohio State has probably the largest athletics budget uh, in, the, in the country. Um, exceeding by a little bit $100 million a year. Uh, and yet that would keep the doors of the Ohio State University open 10 and a half days. Relatively speaking, it's a pretty small portion of what's taking place at one of America's great and very large universities. That does not suggest in any way that, that we don't think that there is something some, somehow out of whack with all of this. But trying to figure out how to bring it back into WAC is not all that easy either. Um, I rem 
if you don't mind me saying so, I, re I remember uh, President Kerwin commenting to a reporter one time in my presence, what are we to say to the folks in Ohio when we have reached a certain level of, of, uh, of giving, of support, of, of income to the, to the university? Do we say stop, that's enough? Uh, it's very difficult to, to roll, this, roll this back and to figure out how it is that we're going to bring it back into some sort of, a, of limits acceptable across a broad range of institutions that have uh, an enormous uh, variation of, of even mission, much less application. Carol, last question. Actually, not a question, but a, a comment, sure. uh, given the purpose of, of the commission. I think our conversation has been focused on a lot of uh, very interesting and complex details because we have a panel of wonderful experts here. So on the one hand, we're going to be pushed. The, the technology enables new business models and the envelope is going to be pushed. On the other hand, there will be ways to challenge legally whether the push is right or not. Uh, but the thread that was inserted a couple of times that hasn't really been followed through in our conversation is that there is also power in stating a values proposition. I think Henry was really making that point when he said there, there could be a point where his institution might be all out. And so let's not forget in the, in the interesting discussion of all the intricacies of the business models and the legal complexities that we as a commission also have an opportunity to uh, make a statement of principle and value. Yes, please. Yeah. I've been sitting here, I've been listening to a lot of eloquence. Uh, the one thing that, that really bothers me is I'm not sure what the NCAA really is. Um, I, I sit here and I, and I look through and they define what amateurism is. Uh, they define, uh, they have compliance officers. They have enforcement officers. They make sure universities are, are playing by the rules. Uh, they're supposed to be looking basically after the student athlete. I know that they are the fundraising arm for the universities. I know that through the TV contracts, I know what they exist for. But to have such a weak response to this fantasy football league and not go out and set themselves out as the example that should lead the universities and should lead the student athletes and protect the universities and protect the student athletes, they come with a lukewarm response in a letter. I've always been suspect of the NCAA because I've always thought that they truly do not represent the student athlete. I think they represent the universities and raising money for the universities, but they don't represent the student athlete. I'm at hoard by what I've read in this. I've held my tongue throughout the entire session because I'm, I'm really that upset. You should be leading, the NCAA should be leading the fight for the student athlete. Not taking a back seat to it and let everybody else pick up the defense of the student athlete. 
I just think that you should go back, whoever you is in the NCAA should go back and examine their response to fantasy football. Not only fantasy football or with other else commercial ventures that are going to take advantage of the student athlete. The student athlete has been given a scholarship, has not made one single nickel as they perform on the field for the universities. They put many, many millions of dollars in the coffers of the university, and yet no one is willing to go out on a limb and protect them. I just think it's time the NCAA review what their purpose in life is, because in my mind, they are not defending the student athlete. Wally, would, you don't have to respond, but if you wanted to make a comment, you're... Well, I, I appreciate the passion with which you speak. And I understand that it is difficult from time to time to understand the role of an organization like the NCAA. I could walk through a description of what it is. I could tell you that it is nothing more than an association of universities and that it has absolutely not one iota of authority to take the first step without direction by the universities themselves. And all of that would be the truth. Uh, but it doesn't set aside what you see as a very passionate issue, and I appreciate that and understand it. Okay. Let me uh, thank the members of the panel for a wonderful discussion. We learned a lot today, and uh, your expertise has uh, helped us uh, enormously in grappling with this complex issue. So let me ask my colleagues to join in a round of applause. This was a podcast from the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. For more information, visit www.knightcommission.org.